Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Howard Rheingold, the author of NetSmart, How to Thrive Online. Howard Rheingold, an influential writer and thinker on social media, is the author of Tools for Thought, The History and Future of Mind-Expanding Technology, The Virtual Community, Homesteading on the Electronic Frontier, both published by the MIT Press, and Smart Mobs, The Next Social Revolution. Howard Rheingold, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today. My pleasure. So is it fair to assume that since you took the time to write NetSmart, How to Thrive Online, that you believe that there's a group of people out there that aren't getting as much out of the internet as they could? I think a casual inspection of the internet will reveal that there's a great deal of material that's not as useful um, as or tasteful as we would all like it to be. So I, I don't think that there's much of an argument there, that we need more people who have a clue in order to increase the value of the commons. And of course, there's the the individual side of it. We need more people who are able to be successful online because they have some idea of what they're doing. You know, when I read this book, it kind of came across to me as a combination of some real Emersonian ideals, the whole idea of self-reliance, mixed in with a little bit of, I want to say, Buddhist thought, you know, being mindful of where you are and concentrating. Would you say that's a fair assessment of the work? Well, absolutely. I, you know, I would, wouldn't so much say Buddhist thought as saying the media that we have today necessitate a kind of mindfulness, an awareness of where we're putting our attention. And when you look around about how do I learn how to do that, Buddhist thought and other meditative traditions come to mind. I think it's the nature of the media that require us to look at how we can learn to handle our side of it, the side that's not the technology, the side that's that's in our brains. And that's the self-reliance. I, again, I think you, you've nailed it. You know, I was editor of Whole Earth Review and Whole Earth Catalog for some years, and I traced that back to Emerson's self-reliance. I think that Stuart Brand was wholly in that camp. So there is a, a bit of an ideology of give people better tools and they will improve the world. And I think that goes back to the Enlightenment. But I, I also think, again, it's necessitated. It used to be that you could expect the, the publisher or the, the librarian or the teacher to give you a text that had the truth in it. And now you can get anything you want. You can get the answer to any question within seconds, but... The, the people who put that information out there for you are not guaranteeing its veracity. It's up to you to determine that. You teach undergraduates. And I wanted to know, is this something you have to overcome with them, a barrier that they might have in, in teaching them that they really shouldn't necessarily trust the things they read online? Well, you know, the first thing that I discovered when I started teaching undergraduates was that it's it's difficult to generalize about them the way they have been generalized about. So this whole digital natives business I would take with a large grain of salt. Some people in my classes know more than I do, and I try to identify them and learn from them. But I am no longer surprised at the number of people who can maybe text with one hand behind their backs and maybe are never separated from their laptop, but don't have a clue about how to use a blog to advocate or how to really do a, a, an effective search or how to use a wiki to collaborate. So I think that there's a, a pretty, still a pretty broad spread of skills 
in regard to the effects of social media on people's lives, I've sort of observed this living experiment since I was teaching students when Facebook first appeared, and it, of course, revolutionized life on campus, and watched as the first cohort four years later found out that they weren't getting into their graduate schools because someone had found their drunken Facebook pictures. So there's been a, a, a dawning of understanding among the Facebook generation that what you do online can matter to you. But it's a moving target. I would say if you were to ask a room full of undergraduates what they knew about their Facebook privacy settings or Facebook aside, uh, Google or any other site that, that tracks uh, your, your movements through cookies, ask them if they know how much their personal decisions are tracked online, and I think you'll find a wide variety of responses and a lot of people who are sort of clueless about it. Are you finding that with these undergraduates you teach, you know, the, uh, I guess the shorthand out there are digital natives, that they in fact have a... Uh, I want to say a, a different perception of privacy than older people. Like I'm in my mid-40s and I've done enough shows on this topic where there seem to be authors that are saying that the whole nature of privacy has fundamentally changed and the younger generation and older generations almost see this issue as, as complete, completely opposite. Has that been your experience or do you think this is another rather broad stroke that uh, this generation is being painted with? Well, you know, I think you have to recognize that the assault on privacy, that's maybe pejorative language, the, the need for people who want to sell us things to know more about us is a moving target. Every day there's something new. Who would have thought a year or two ago that facial recognition would enable uh, Facebook to automatically recognize your picture? Uh, how many people know that, that, that Facebook has facial recognition? So the, the, the landscape keeps changing, the rules keep changing, you know, as as we go along. And, you know, college students, they've got a lot on their plates. They've got a lot of things to learn. And at the same time, all of these technologies are are changing. I'll, I'll have to say that, that, yes, and I, you know, although I'm 64, I would definitely include myself in this uh, group, uh, call it a generational group if you want. People share a lot more online these days. And I think, in general, that's a good thing. We would not have a web if people didn't want to put up a picture of their dog and link to their friend's uh, picture of their dog. It really came from people's desire to share, and there's a huge amount of value that comes from that. You know, sharing is maybe a nice way of saying exposing your private information. I think a good distinction is whether the information that others know about you can enable them to influence your life in some way. And that's the, that's where I think that we're, we have some real collisions. And I think, and I know that my students have some real questions. So when I've asked my students to do projects, they've done projects about their privacy online. And some of them are appalled by what they learn about what other people know about them. So I'd, I'd say it's, it's, an, it's an uneven question. I think most of these questions have been reduced to stark black and white by the headlines. And it turns out that there's a lot of shades of gray in between, a lot of shades of knowledge and lack of knowledge to be found. 
Let's talk a little bit about the sunnier side of the internet. Uh, in your book, you talk about personal learning networks, and they seem to be a really powerful thing. What are personal learning networks? Well, you know, personal le learning network is something that I found out about after I started doing it. I uh, became interested in using technology in education when I first started teaching using social media. So I looked for people. I looked for books. I looked for blogs. I did searches and when I found those people, I followed them on Twitter. I followed an RSS feed of their their blog. So those books and those the output of those people on social media, whether I knew them or not, became nodes in a network of information that was flowing into me on a on a regular basis. And then I began engaging with some of these people. I began to know what they were interested in and if I saw something that I thought they would like to know, I would send it their way and eventually began to ask questions of them and engage them. So a personal learning network is every person's collection of resources, whether those are information sources or those are, are people who are also information sources. And it's not just kind of a passive reception of what's sent to you. It involves an active in engagement, ultimately, with them. So. Cultivating a personal learning network it has, has to do with knowing how to find people who know what they're talking about online, which I think is an important skill these days. And it's knowing how to begin engaging with people who know how, uh, what they're talking about so that you can learn. And engaging with them in a way that they're going to take as much away from the, the encounter as, as you are. So a personal learning network ultimately is not just the network of sources that you rely on. It, it ought to be a network of people who learn together. So you mentioned skills. What are some skills people can develop to get a better sense of whether somebody is worth adding to their personal learning network? Well, first of all, there's discovery. How do you find an expert? I, I love to use social bookmarking services like Delicious and Digo to to go explore a tag and see who were the early people to, to bookmark a good source on this topic and what else have they bookmarked. So again, the other side of that, that privacy question is a, a lot of the information that people have made available about their interests makes it much easier to find people who know what they're talking about. Once you've found people who have a lot to say about a subject that interests you, it's, a, it's up to you to kind of vet them and figure out whether they are A plus information or B minus information or not worth following at all. And that's where that, that whole issue of what I call after Hemingway, crap detection uh, comes in. You can't simply accept what a self-proclaimed expert says. You have to go check it out a little bit. So this, I think, whole mindset of critically analyzing the information that comes into us. And I don't mean you know, writing a dissertation about it, but maybe finding out who the author is and doing a search on, on the author, finding out what other people say, looking at what their references are, uh, that that ought to really become instinctive if we're going to have a population of people who don't pass along bad medical information that could kill people, who pass along bad political rumors that could weaken democracy, who will lead their lives following advice that's not entirely accurate. So I think foremost is how do you find the information that you need 
And it's not just entering a search into a search engine. It's knowing how to use a search as a way of learning about a subject. And then it's how do you vet that information? How do you, how do you qualify the, the claims of fact that you find? Those are, I think, essential before you can get much further. They're kind of the personal uh, uh, literacies, if you will. And, of course, I build on those personal literacies of uh, attention and and craft detection to start reaching outward towards others with participation and collaboration. So, finally, regarding personal learning networks. I mean, people out there might be thinking, boy, that sounds like a great idea. I want to get involved and I want to start developing one. But I'm a little concerned that I'm just going to be taking and not really giving and that I don't have anything to necessarily to add to the conversation. What advice would you give them? You know, I think, first of all, pay attention. If you pay attention to a network, to a group of people who seem to know what they're talking about, and you're interested in that subject, sooner or later you will come across a resource that would be valuable to them and maybe they don't know about. So you might not be able to enter into a kind of PhD dissertation defense level discussion with them, but you might be able to say, hey, here's a, a resource I found about the subject we are interested in that might interest you. I think you can think of participation online in general as following a kind of curve. Uh, in my book, I reproduce this curve I found that Ross Mayfield put online, which is a, a power lock curve, one of those curves that goes up the hockey stick. But on, on, the, on the low end of the hockey stick, you can participate online in very lightweight ways. You can be a regular reader of a blog. You could tag something and, and bookmark it. You could like something or, or plus it or favorite it. Those are all kind of lightweight activities. You can kind of move up and make yourself a little more visible by commenting on a blog. You can become a blogger yourself. You can organize a wiki. So as you move up that kind of collaborative curve, you become more and more involved with collaborating with other people. You become more and more exposed. You, you put your name on on what you do, you become more and more active, but also I think besides providing value to others, you provide a signal that you are interested in the subject, knowledgeable about the subject, willing to share about the subject, and others are going to share with you. Information is going to come your way. So this is not just kind of uh, philosophy. Uh, the empirical research seems to show that you're probability of someone offering you assistance online. The biggest predictor of that is whether you have offered assistance to others online. Howard Reingold, the author of NetSmart, How to Thrive Online. Thanks so much for talking to the MIT Press Podcast today. Indeed, my pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can always like us on our Facebook page www.facebook.com slash MIT Press, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2012, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.